please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. Beth Mund was a NASA public relations officer for the Johnson Space Center and a communications officer for the International Space Station. She's an advocate for the people and their stories of science and space exploration, and now shares their stories on stage, in workshops, and on her podcast, Casual Space. Beth serves on the Space Camp Alumni Board and is a Space Drinks Board member. She's also an analog astronaut. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this fascinating individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. And I'll let you know what I find. I was always asking questions and I remember it was fourth grade and the friend down the street, my friend Kevin, got a telescope from Kmart (laughs) (laughs) and he had, he was the only kid on the street that had an open lot next to the house. All the neighborhood was developed. And so this open lot was where we played (laughs) and we would sled and we'd go out there. So it was like our own little park and we went to the open lot He got his new telescope. He brought it out just in time for us to keep our eyes on the sky for 1984. Oh, gosh, I'm really dating myself. Do you know what happened in 1984? Other than the Cubs going to the World Series. uh, (laughs) That would have been my guess because I'm from Chicago. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that, Ryan. That's phenomenal. Okay, they didn't. I'm sorry. They went to the championship. Championship Cubs didn't go to the World Series. It was October baseball for us. We were happy. Exactly. But what else happened in 1984 was Haley's Comet. Oh. And so as kids, we were like, what is this thing? Let's check it out. And after we set up the telescope and we looked through it, boom, questions just started flowing. Like, what am I seeing? What do you mean? It's Is it coming at us? Is it going away? Like, where is this from? Where did it come from? What do you mean it's ice flying through space? Permanent ice? Like, is it going to melt? You know, you're just... All the questions came in a flood and I just consumed me with questions. So what does a kid do with questions? They go back to their parents, they go to their teachers. And after months and months, I'm sure my parents and teachers were like, we got to get this kid some books or something. (laughs) So they sent me to the library, both my parents and my teachers. This is so (laughs) pre-Google. I know, I know. Wait, are you saying I'm old? I am just as old. I am old. (laughs) Yes, Ryan. I I like to tell people I'm from the 1900s. Right. Which is true. (laughs) I did a, my sixth grade science report was on Haley's Comet as it was coming (gasps) around. So there you go. It was just so incredible. And to know that this was 
you know, before everything was instantaneous, like right. Google and all our information, to know that you're seeing something that only comes around every hundred years, yeah. I felt like I was part of something really incredibly celestially special. Yeah. And I said, all right, what is what else is out there? What is this? I just had to devour everything I could. So fast forward to the library. What do I find on the shelf? A book, of course, called Space Camp. <laughs> and I read the book and I'm like, holy cow, this book is incredible. Now, remind you, I'm younger, but time passes and pretty soon the book becomes a actual movie. Like now it's a movie and the movie is like blows me away. And I say, I have got to get to space camp clearly. And my parents know it. And my teachers know it. There's just a problem. The only time I could go was during school. So they were like, right. when I say school, I mean Catholic school. Oh. So they were like, what kind of science adventure is this that you speak of that's not related to Catholic school? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, just a little thing called space camp. Have you heard of it? And at the time they really hadn't. And they were like, you know, people leave for academics and people leave for athletics, but not so much science-based activities. So we're going to pass. We'll not let you go. And oh, my heart, it sank and I was like, okay. So this was the first time in my life where two things happened. Number one, my mom and I went in there with calmness and grace to the principal's office and we pled our case. And we were like, you get science credit in school for going to space camp. You get an unbelievable experience that relates to a future in STEM, which at the time wasn't a term, but it had right. all the qualifications. And <laughs> you're not just playing you're part of a mission you're learning all of these things are happening while you're away from school so if beth can get all her homework done and the tests and exams can she go and you would have thought that i was like applying for the gold medal because everything was on the line i just had to go <laughs> and so after some calm again graceful uh I want to use the word uh, persuasion. <laughs> it was decided that I could be excused from school and go. And that's where it all began. That's amazing. Where, where was it that you grew up? So in the Midwest, there is no, if you're not on the space coast, as you know, Ryan, you know, outside <laughs> in the Chicago suburbs. Right. So I'm in scenic St. Charles, which is not where I grew up, but where I landed now. And I'm not far from where I grew up. And so you've got Chicago in your backyard, which yeah. is totally great. And access to a lot of resources and stuff like the Adler Planetarium and right. some pretty great museums. But you really still need parents or teachers or, or reasons to get there. And then yeah. when you're there, you get to kind of you don't always have the choices or the resources to choose what you want to go spend time on. You kind of like got to do the quick whirlwind of take the tour. And, and if you're lucky, spend a little more time in this section or that and forget about like really high end, especially in Catholic school where the STEM based programs weren't funded. So, you know, even as simple as chemistry, biology, physics, those weren't traditional programs, right. even in high school in Catholic suburban Midwest schools. So I was not exposed to a lot of the things that some of the other coastal students would have access and exposure to. I know you talk to a lot of space camp alumni and people, 
who have the same path. They really didn't. Some were very much exposed. And you had asked me earlier, was there anyone in the family? My mom worked for the airlines, as did my dad. So a little aviation was always in the background, but not space. So I really had to seek it out. But that was part of the joy and part of the adventure is when you find the thing that speaks to you, you go and nothing will stop you. So yes, there was limited resources in high school and I'll never just... There's no blame here. It's just what was in my environment at the time. So when you discovered that you could go to space camp, did you go by yourself or did you, yes. your family go or what? Oh, my family took me down, of course. Okay. And after the same story that so many of your colleagues and our, and our friends in space camp family, I love this part of the journey and I don't want to leave it out. Yeah. Everyone seems to earn their way to camp. So I did too. You know, you got to raise the money or do the work or beg and plead or get permission. Like that's all part of the journey. And I feel like it shouldn't be dismissed because it tells you you really want it. And it gets people on board that surround you and support you. And that's as much part of the space camp journey as your individual attendance, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Yeah, I really felt like teachers and family, they may not have understood the desire, but they understood my passion and my need to go. And there was, it was clear as day. And here's another thing for parents. I also want to mention, Ryan, which if you're a parent, you know, you throw a million things at the wall and see what sticks. Right. And you you just never know what's going to land. And for someone like me in the middle of the Midwest, and I was such a... I had so many eclectic activities, everything from karate to ballet, which is hilarious because I'm very (laughs) tall and ballet. Let's just say rhythm is not in my bones. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Whatsoever, like at all. Yes, I did piano lessons. I did a few things. Karate, piano, ballet. What? Nothing sticks with this girl. So my parents, (laughs) I can only imagine what they felt like when they were like, space. Okay, she's really getting, you know, the books and the support and she's kind of asking the questions. So they already saw my in my inquisitiveness towards it. And who would have thought of all the things they gave me opportunities for space was like probably one of those things that they just (laughs) never thought was going to be the one that would stick the long shot. Right. Yeah, I think it is important that that journey to space camp. uh, There are stories of like the first their first flight just at all because they had to take an airplane to get to Huntsville. And for a lot of people, you know, it's their first trip alone. Um, the number of people that I talked to who were like 14 and put on a plane by themselves, like times are so different now. I, my child is is 13 and a half. That half is very important. Mine and too. Yeah, yes. And I can't imagine putting my 13-year-old daughter on, on a <laughs> Southwest Airlines flight to Huntsville and being like, it'll be okay. Like that's... <laughs> well, I think she might surprise you, Ryan. I'm 13. sure she would. <laughs> Don't you know they know everything at 13? Oh, I'm told quite often. <laughs> If you want to go, you figure it out. Right. Like you just right. figure it out. If your parents said, listen, if you really want to play baseball, you got to figure out how to get to practice every day. Kids figure it out. Right. So I yeah. feel like your daughter, when she finds her thing, whatever that is, she'll, it just kind of falls together when you yeah. really want it. Well, right, right now it's paleontology. So we'll, we'll see how it pans wow. out. So Has I know. Have she right? seen the movie 65? She did. Yeah. She flipped out. <laughs> <laughs> Both worlds, your space world and her paleontology yep. coming together. My son and I watched it like this <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Space Camp is, honestly, it is actually pretty inexpensive for what you get, but it is still a lot of money. Like, the fundraising thing is a, a huge, huge element that, that I think a lot of people um, don't realize the dedication and the time and investment that, that kids make to be able to do it. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Well, and it's life-changing. So what investment is worth changing your perspective or your trajectory in your life? If there's ever, if they were to say to you, it's going to cost a lot, but it's going to put you on a path that will put you forward in your career. What does that cost? How do you ROI that? You know, looking back now, I would pay that five times over. And I think a lot of, that's why a lot of alumni are great donors and they know what they got from it. Right. And even if it was not something they pursued in their career, it was an impactful, you know, experience at camp. Uh, with friends and new things or they learned some or they had a blast right and that's that's something I think you can put some money towards because yeah. it was memorable for you yeah yeah so when you came out of that was were you thinking I'm going to be an astronaut or was there some other path astronaut was such a big idealistic career that so few were going to be able to obtain and I was always really realistic about that. It was very Air Force driven back then as well. It was, yes and just to put that story forward I did apply to the Air Force which is a very (laughs) funny story I didn't tell my parents. Really? I just applied. Yeah (laughs) I wouldn't recommend that. No (laughs) (laughs) So they found out because the recruiter called the house way back in the day when you had voice messages like on the recorder right. and then it was like hi this is so and so from the armed forces the air force your daughter has an appointment to come in and do a physical at this date and time and I was so busted and I had to explain <laughs> myself and there were tears and I said to my dad this is the only way I can get to NASA so astronaut path realistically yeah that would have been great but for me I didn't have even a path in school in high school to like I said physics advanced chemistry those weren't even on my path so I'm like how am I going to make up all that to get to the astronaut program let's be real and think let's just make my goal to one day work for NASA so that became my goal and the air force quickly got squashed which was totally correct it wasn't going to be in the cards for me and i'm grateful now looking back Mm -hmm. always but at the time i was crushed (laughs) i was so upset because i really thought that was the only way in and back in the day for many it was but for me and for my parents who knew me so well especially my dad he's like I just don't think that's a fit for you. And he didn't say it in those words, but that's what he meant. And he was right. He knew me well enough to know when it came to like, I like to question things all the time. So if you give me a marching order, I would question it. And that doesn't bode well in a military base sense of, you know, (laughs) take one for the team. And he knew that. So, okay. So my goal became, how do I get to NASA? Twenty twenty three is the fiftieth anniversary of the launch of Skylab. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, is celebrating with the Summer of Skylab, a series of presentations, educational panels, and celebrity events taking place through November of twenty twenty three. Visit rocketcenter.com for more information.
right after I continued in high school, I went on to college and every paper I could possibly write, there was going to be a theme that was space or NASA. <laughs> I, just, I kept it forward in my academics and I always squeezed it in no matter what was the class, right. except statistics. That was a really, that would be a big stretch, but sure. you could still do it. And I just found ways to pursue, like nobody questioned this. Every time I turned in a paper, whether it was economics or communication or calm law, and it all changed in college when I turned in that calm law paper and the teacher wrote at the top and I told her this story and I've gone back to my college and spoke about this. I'll never forget. She wrote at the top, this would make a great thesis in your master's program. Because I was questioning how NASA handled the Challenger crisis through communication. Right. They weren't exactly transparent, as we know, and they actually didn't really have the crisis communication implementation that they do today. Yeah. And I studied this in calm law. So for her to write that was my open invitation to go pursue it. I had never thought that a master's was even in the stars for me. Could I go into a master's? What would that look like? Does that mean I could study this more and actually do it in an <laughs> academic sense? And she's like, yes. So fast forward to my master's and that's exactly what I do. So I became, I earned my master's of science in journalism and science journalism and perfectly suited for that because I found my skills in writing and communicating and digging into the journalism, who, what, when, where, right. and then applying that to a greater public, whether it was, you know, in academia or whether it was in my future career. Um, I worked in corporate. I worked in as an actual reporter for like a hot minute <laughs> until I got my first paycheck. I'm like, oh, man. Right. I don't know if this is sustainable. I'm like sleeping in the car. I finally found the place where my studies, my interest could match my skills. And when I did that, like my grades were amazing and stellar. I got to work as a TA teaching while I was going to school. So it paid for everything. So it was just the perfect time for me to arrive in that part of my journey, right. looking at NASA in an academic sense, but then it came time to apply. Well, did you, uh, did you do that as your thesis? The Challenger, exploring yes. the Challenger. That was your thesis. Yeah, okay. it was. And it was great. It was all the things, you know, I came to it as, well, how can we do it better? And I already started using we. I hadn't even, you know, <laughs> not even a single application yet to NASA. I just knew it was going to happen. Right. So I had that mindset and I'm like, how can we, aka NASA, communicate better? Can I be part of that solution? Because I feel like I'm in training to do so because I'm starting the path of studying it so I can come in and provide solutions. And I don't even know where this is going to land, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> sure. So. so where did it land when you got out of, uh, out of your master's program? Where, what was the first, the first step? Other than the journalism job <laughs> for, for all of five minutes, I went straight into corporate where it is where the money was. Sure. So that was great. That was a great change. But, you know, corporate gave me this beautiful polish of my writing and communication skills. Yeah. So as a journalist, you can keep it really, uh, I don't want to say simple, but you can cut straight to the who, what, when, where and just report that. And there is not a lot of polishing there purposefully. Right. No fluff. But when you get no fluff when you get to the corporate level your writing has to be 
perfected. It has to be on par. You still have to do the importance of the who, what, when, where. And in many ways, I started my journey of what I like to call translating. So (laughs) you're translating for an audience that's paying you a lot of money. This particular audience for me was Motorola. And so I learned as a tech writer how to cut through the fluff, but translate what needed to be said to the folks who were out in the field doing these adaptations to the technical rollovers for their um, communication systems, which was everything from, uh, you know, the walkie talkies with the instant communication built into the phone to the new generation of phones at the time. So I got my technical writing skills under my belt. And then I moved into the corporate office where they wanted me to start writing speeches and communications for the executives. And that was really polishing my craft in, in writing and communicating and speaking and delivering the messages. And it was there where I, every night I would just look at the NASA site to see what jobs were open. And (laughs) after many applications, Ryan, many, I'm talking like more than seven, maybe more than 10. And I did get some callbacks and I did get some applications back in the day where you had to type out and deliver by mail the application, not instantly online, not on the website, which would have been wonderful. But I saw the job and it was in that moment, a late night at Motorola sitting in my cubicle in the corporate offices. It's like 8 p.m. I'm still there. And it said, NASA Johnson Space Center communications specialist. (laughs) And I went, ding, that's it. That's it. And it was like that moment where the light bulb went off and it just I knew it. I was still nervous. I had to go through the interview process. I had to write the application of my life and of course I called upon my best friend to help me out she's always been in my corner everyone should have one she was mine and I said you've got to help me write this application because it's everything like this is it for me and then fast forward I moved to Houston I got the job I started immediately and it was literally like jumping into the deep end but I was ready that sounds great. So as an internal communication specialist, what, what was your role? I had three roles at NASA Johnson Space Center. The first one was internal, as you said. And so letting employees and folks who were working there know what was going on. And that was top to bottom. Every department of NASA. And that can be overwhelming. So what they do is they assign you one department and that's where you start and sometimes you'll rotate through so for me I got assigned to the tech transfer division which was so phenomenal and perfectly matched for me everyone wants to go to the astronaut division or the mission control division of course that's like when you come to space camp everyone wants to be the pilot or the commander yes but this girl at space camp was the mission specialist so (laughs) (laughs) Not lost on me that when I get to NASA, they're going to put me in tech transfer division. So it was this glorious opportunity to take all of the spinoffs that NASA creates from the technology they apply. And I get to write about that and help that division promote what they're doing to the public. So that was my first job. Phenomenal. Then my second job as I evolved was to be the communicator for the whole center. So now I move out of tech transfer and what is the Johnson Space Center doing specifically? So for those who don't know, NASA has 10 centers around the United States and each center has a specialization. So the Johnson Space Center is the home of human spaceflight and training. So that means all the astronauts work and live and train 
at Johnson Space Center. And we focus on how humans successfully go and live in space. So now I'm telling that story in our annual reports. I'm writing speeches for the astronauts. I'm telling the public what's going on with top to bottom, what we're doing there and how we're training. I'm going to the NBL, the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, and I'm witnessing the training where they submerge the entire space station and half a shuttle and the astronauts work under the water. And I get to tell that story and I'm representing the Johnson Space Center out in a greater public um, to tell the taxpayers where their dollars are getting invested in what we're doing as we're assembling the International Space Station at the time. And then my final job was I actually moved into that program, the International Space Station program, where I got to tell that story during the assembly. And it was just such a joy. And as that program continued, I was fortunate enough to work on that program during Columbia. So while everyone else was shifting and the shuttle came into after post-tragedy and post-investigation, a lot of people unfortunately um, lost their jobs because the shuttle did not fly for a long time. And if you were trained in that program or if you were working in that program, you were on a hiatus or you were laid off. But because I was in station, I continued and my job fortunately continued each day. But I wasn't sure where the career would move forward after Columbia. It was very clear when we were flying, as NASA does, there's always a plan and a mission forward and a budget and a Congress to approve it that shows you where you're going and very directed and purposeful. But that was very unclear and in question across NASA And for many people, it was, and for me, it was an opportunity for me to move on and see where I could apply my talents elsewhere. And I decided to go back to corporate, but not without first meeting my husband. And we got engaged in mission control at the Johnson Space Center and historic mission control. And then we came to the Chicagoland area and started a whole new career. Was your husband with NASA then, I'm assuming at the time? Yes, but Ryan, this is important. I was a civil servant, he was a contractor, and so we always have a joke in our house, who did the work? (laughs) (laughs) This is an ongoing conversation. (laughs) No, it was great because he brought a totally different perspective and he worked in station program as well. So it was just wonderful that we met there and started, you know, it's so great to start a foundation with someone you can relate to. So I know a lot of people who met at space camp and they fell in love and got married and started their lives at right. camp, you know, the, the love that blossomed. And that's just so incredible to me. For me, it was a little later in life, but it was at NASA. And I'm pretty grateful because we have that foundation where we speak the acronyms, but we also, you know, the language, that's the NASA language, right. but we also know what it was like to be both part of a mission that was greater than us. And we also know what it was like to be part of a horrible tragic event and know what that means to continue to move forward in the mission. Right. Can we talk about that for, for just a moment? You did your master's thesis on the first shuttle disaster, and then you were there in communications for the second shuttle disaster. Share a little bit about maybe what, what that felt like or what it was like to apply that sort of research and knowledge that you had. Ryan, everything you've learned about crisis communication in your academics and in your professional career and in your training through your corporate training is is nothing 
it's there, it's in the background, but until you're in that moment, you default. And I think a lot of military folks have this experience. NASA trains you day one. When I got sworn in as a civil servant, you are handed a binder to your specific job. And most everyone at NASA gets a said binder. And in that, a binder at the time, it's probably digital today, but (laughs) it's a hard copy binder for me. And it tells you who, what team you're on, where you fall in the hierarchy of your team and where you fall in the hierarchy of NASA, what your role is. And that's just like page one, two. And then page five through 20, is if this happens, you do that. If this happens, this is where you report. This is what you do. This is how you show up. This is how you work it through. So it's like a book of potential anomalies that are part of your role. And I'm not talking like if there's a fire drill, all proceed to the nearest exit. You know that. That's everyone right. knows that. I'm talking about what is Beth's role, her specific role defined in this job description when a crisis or an anomaly or a situation happens, what is Beth to do? And so not specific just to Beth, I'm being a little lenient here, but right. there, your specific role in your title of your job is defined to that level. And that's something NASA taught me that no one else in my whole life, you know, we always joke there's a, at NASA, there's a backup for a backup for a backup for a backup. And my kids know that, but for me, that first came to me at NASA, you're always prepared for the anomaly. And it's just a joy when the anomaly is not present. And that's how, you know, the astronauts train and how we trained professionally. But to be there in that moment, Ryan, back to your question, it was a Saturday morning. I was off that day because I had been working the mission. But as you know, Columbia had this beautiful day extra because they had bad weather so they were scheduled to land a day before and it got waved off and whenever you get that extra day in space it's such joy you get a little extra time to look out the window you get extra time for your experiments you just value that time and we did too on the ground because you're working 24 7 below on earth to support the team and the crew. So we had all been working the 14 day mission that was already prior. So getting that extra day happened to fall on a Saturday. So I woke up Saturday morning because I was very excited to understand that the sonic boom would be coming over Houston as they would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and come to land. Right. So I kept stepping outside, looking at the sky and waiting to hear it. And then I kept stepping back inside to look on NASA TV to see where they were at in their re-entry. And when the person on Capcom in Mission Control was calling out during re-entry, as we all know from our space camp experience, and then you're back into the Earth's atmosphere, that's a long time to wait, but it's not uncommon, and you wait. As we were waiting, it seemed to take a little longer and then a little longer, and I saw the person on, again, cap, capsule communication, Capcom, reach for his binder. And because I know what my binder is, I knew immediately when he just reached for it and the amount of time that was a little unusual had passed, I left my apartment, I drove to the space center, I parked, I went into the newsroom where all 20 some bank of TVs were showing the same thing everyone was seeing, which was the unfortunate breaking apart of Columbia. So we're seeing it in real time. And I don't remember 
much more from that except that I opened my binder, Ryan, and went to work. And when I say I don't remember anything, I don't remember anything for a month, like a month. And it wasn't, if it weren't for my journal of just a few things I captured each day, because I thought, I know this is an event. And right. I just want to make a couple notes as I, as I go through it, because I don't remember eating or sleeping. I don't remember going home. I don't remember much. I remember O'Keefe addressing us, who was the NASA administrator at the time. I remember just opening that binder in step one, step two, and so forth. And then when we picked up our heads a month later for the memorial, then it hit me. It hit me. And it was a flood of emotion. It's hard to talk about to this day, but it was at least with my colleagues and my NASA family and community that we mourned together. And that was important. So unlike my academic experience where you can, you can have the time where you study it and you can instant replay and you can look at it and you can come at it in many very comfortable ways where you can examine it at your leisure. You know, what about how we did it? The grass is always greener when you look back or you look to the other side. But in this instance, I didn't have time to look. I just had time to operate and work the solutions that needed to happen. And when it came to what I learned, Challenger was very, I didn't, I I think I said it earlier. It wasn't very transparent. Columbia was a thousand percent different. I actually remember saying to the public, because that was my job, we don't know yet what happened. And my colleague were saying the same thing. And as the voice of NASA at the time, there was a handful of us who were doing that. And, you know, to this day, I think my comments and my quotes are still out there on Google under my maiden name, because we are answering with, I don't know. NASA never says that, but that's what it said in our book because we just didn't have the answers. And that's what O'Keefe even said when he addressed us until we are able to look into this and we need a little bit of time here. We don't know what happened. We don't know why we're going to continue. And as we get the information, we will, you know, relay it. And that's what we were doing. So I feel like we came full circle to that transparency that I had studied those years before. So in a way, what a, what a full circle, you know, journey for me, but also I can never, I'll do my best, but I don't know how to teach that. I don't know how to teach to be in a crisis moment and work it without picking your head up and just staying, you know, focused because you can't teach that in a book or in a school or even in crisis examples or case studies. It's good to have those. It does help. But in that moment, you've got to stay focused. You can't veer off the task list in front of you because teams are relying on you. Lots of people are, that's just your role. When I said, you know, we wanted to join NASA because we want to be part of a mission that was greater than ourselves. That's also part of the mission. The anomalies are as much of a part as are the successes and victories. So let's get happy. You got married. Where'd you go after NASA? (laughs) Oh gosh. United Airlines. Okay. Airlines in Chicago, based out of Chicago, where we came out of bankruptcy and we had a clean slate. And I wanted to be part of a team that was going to kind of rebuild a major brand airline. And that lasted for a while. And then I continued in some different jobs, including my local government uh, town was looking for a PR director. I did that for a while, grew my family and kind of settled in. And then I got the analog astronaut bug. It just bit me. And I, 
I just had to go explore something that was so closely related to space camp where you do the research and you do the work and you do a mission, a simulated mission. Um, sometimes you go to a lunar surface, sometimes you go to a Martian surface, you lock the door for a segmented amount of time and you go to work just like space camp. And just like space camp, you don't necessarily know your crew, but you know your mission and you got to work together to succeed. Tell us what an analog <laughs> astronaut is. Well, the easy answer is it's an astronaut that stays on the ground. So <laughs> In many ways, you're eating the same food, you're growing your food, your resources are limited, you can't exit. If you're going to airlock or if you're going to go out and do a space walk or a lunar walk or a Martian surface, you have to don your suit. You have to wait in the airlock. You have to breathe. Now, technically, some suits have it if they're really high end. Most don't. At least they have a fan. But you have to be protected from the elements and you have to sweat it out. And you have to go do your mission, you know, walk and you have to work with the team. And when it's all said and everyone takes turns, whether it's the same things in space camp, someone's got to clean, someone's got to repair, someone's got to plan, someone has to be in charge and be the leader and make some executive decisions. All of that is part of an analog mission. You're away from your family, you miss your home, and if you're on a true analog mission, and most of them are, again, you are you have a delay in communications, just like you would on the moon or Mars, so you're not necessarily <laughs> able to communicate with your family, like pick up the phone, you can't talk to them. You aren't eating the best food, but that's a whole nother part of an analog. And you are truly remote, like you are in a place. And the reason you go to these places is because they are in extreme environments, just like in space. So if you're doing a Mars mission, you might want to be under the volcanoes in Hawaii in the volcanic tubes, lava tubes, like we think exist on Mars, where you can train your gear, your robotics, your communication systems, your clothing and boots, your apparatus. That all happens on an analog. And sometimes, most times, you can turn your data back either into NASA or ESA, or you can write a paper or you can publish your science research. Everything from the food you eat to the things you're studying to your psychological effects, they can all be studied and examined in an analog mission. So I feel like Space Camp Evolution 2.0 when you're in an analog mission. And so this is a, a company that are basically like schedules and arranges for these to happen? Sometimes they are a company, but analog astronaut locations are all over the world and you find the company. So you have to apply and then that group or that organization, it's more like an organization because you also have to find the finances to do sure. it. So if a company would pay you, that would be amazing. But most of the time you have, and sometimes there are scholarships and opportunities, but you're paying your way mostly. And then you get to have that and you're proposing your role on the mission, or whether it's your research, your role, your strength, your training, what you're going to bring to the team, and then you get selected and then it's go time. And wow, you just, again, the same way Space Camp changed my perspective and trajectory, these analogs always bring home for me a new perspective, one that I miss my family and I value them and love them dearly. And that space is really hard. And for everyone who says, Beth, why didn't you ever be an astronaut? Or do you still want to be an astronaut? Yes. And <laughs> try being away from your family on an analog for a month or just try an analog for a month. 
And when there's days you can't go outside, you can't go out in the fresh air, you've been in the dark, like at the lunar base in Poland, where we did an analog, and you're underground for a month, see how that feels, see that how that plays with your psyche. And let me know if you still think space is great because <laughs> it's just really hard and you don't know. I love, I say this all the time when people ask me about analog missions, everyone breaks, Ryan. It's just a matter of when. There was a real situation at the Lunaris facility in Poland where our CO2 levels dropped and um, I'm sorry, they were too high. And we figured out, we had to like, you know, um, figure out what is causing that. Turns out, there were six very athletic adults who were all sleeping in the pods. We had bunk bed pods and we had to split up because we were not circulating the air properly. We didn't, I don't know if we didn't open the door enough or something was just <laughs> going on with that air circulation and alarms were going off just like they would on the shuttle or in a station and you have to go work the problem. And this was in the middle of the night that we like, we all kind of woke up and we thought, What's that CO2 alarm? What's going on? We looked at the levels and we we're like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> right. And so we had to like, we had to split up. It ended up where like some people had to go sleep elsewhere. Some people had to go sleep over there and we had to bring those levels down really immediately. So yeah, it's very real in that sense. And, you know, growing your own food and appreciating everything from like the privacy of a shower or a toilet which in space, let's be honest, is so basic. Or right. if, if you're that lucky and growing your food, we had food that we grew. And at the end of the mission, just eating little micro salad uh, <laughs> leaves was like such a joy. So in that sense, it's really real. But you need to come, Ryan, and join us on an analog mission because it will test you and you will love it. Yeah, you will love it. It sounds fun. How does someone get involved with that? Okay, Analog Astronaut Community. So you can go to analogastronaut.com. That should be the portal that shows you to all the astronaut, um, analog astronaut facilities all over the world. And like I said, each facility is run by a different organization, but you can do one under the ice. You can do one on a ship. You can do <laughs> one in the desert. You can do one in Poland. You can do one on the volcano in Hawaii. You can wow. do one on... Um, Let's see, there's one in MDRS is the Mars Desert Research Station out on the West Coast. They're everywhere. Oh, there's one you can do under the Florida Keys in underneath the water. Wow. Which I don't, Ryan, I don't know if I can ever have the courage to do that because talk about like <laughs> not being able to open the door and get fresh air. You are underwater for the entire time wow. that you're in that analog. So if you get itchy or if you need a smoke break, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. How long do these last? Oh, gosh, they vary. Uh, NASA is looking right now and doing the call out for a one year analog wow. mission. And you do have to have a master's for that. And there are some other requirements. They need to study the humans that will be going to Mars. So the applicant, the applications open right now. And trust me, I think that's so appealing. But <laughs> spending a year away from my family is just I don't know how I could do that. Although I say that with teenage kids, remind right. me, <laughs> this might be the perfect time. <laughs> Maybe to now. On one year analog. <laughs> <laughs> as far as timing, there's some for two weeks. There's some for one week. There's some for four months, three months, two months. It varies. Sure. And please don't forget, you got to make commitments to get there. 
So you right. also have to travel. So you, no one gets off the plane and walks right in. That's pretty rare. Yeah. Usually you need a couple of days to learn the team, learn the facility, get acquainted, learn the science. Sometimes the analogs before you have research that they'd like you to continue. And that's mm. part of your requirements. And you need to continue that research, sure. like things that are growing or things, robotics that are getting tested. You can't just, if you just walk away, that would be the only data you have. So if you can continue right. that data over the course of the analog teams, you've got a rich and invested experiment to now, share. Do attendees pay for this or, or are these like, do grants pay for it? How does, how um, does that work? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. People are getting more and more creative. When I attend the analog astronaut conference in a month, we are going to be unveiling some new scholarships and we're going to be unveiling some partnerships and sponsors when you travel abroad, sometimes you can get a grant or you can get something from the embassy that could sponsor you if you work out some kind of deal where you're sharing science or you're sharing some kind of promotions. Everyone is getting creative with this. So while the cost is extensive, just like Space Camp, you can find creative ways to manage and dilute that cost so that you can partner with others to make your experience a shared one. Very fun. Very fun. My husband said I should do three missions. I've done two. And I think he's trying to get rid of me. No, I'm just kidding. I think um, <laughs> he said three is a well-rounded experience. So I'm looking for my third. I'm how, very excited. How many has so, he done? Zero. <laughs> zero. But to be fair, he did travel to Kazakhstan on behalf of NASA delivering cargo to station when we didn't have the shuttle. So he very much in his own way to go out to the desert of nowhere. <laughs> sure. And deliver some of that precious NASA cargo. He he had his own version of an analog. I have found myself in two wonderful new careers. I love being the podcast host for Casual Space, where I'm calling upon some of my NASA former NASA colleagues and friends to talk very casually about space so that everyone feels invited. So we don't use the technical terms, we don't speak the NASA language on the show. We just keep it really inviting so that no one feels like we're speaking too much STEM or too many acronyms. We just talk space. And it's been such a joy. And I started that because people who found out that I worked for NASA, everyone, Ryan, came to me with their story. Yeah. And I mean, stories of my father's uncle pulled, was on the ship that pulled one of the Apollo capsules out from the ocean. Wow! And I said, that's incredible. And that story ended there. And it just did. I said, did you, did he ever tell you that? Like, who told you this? And they would go and tell me this extensive, elaborate, enthusiastic, inspiring story. And it didn't live anywhere. Right. So I'm like, I've got to capture these stories and I'm going to do it on a podcast. So now we're almost three plus years in with a couple hundred episodes and we're just going to keep telling your stories. And then the next, which is a segue into my next role, the executive director of the Stories of Space Project. So I'm sitting there one day and I have this amazing conversation with the CEO at Aegis Aerospace. She's an incredible woman. Um, and Stephanie invited me after our conversation. She said, if you ever want to fly anything to space, we're your company. <laughs> and I sat with that. You know how you get a worm in your brain and you can't get it out. 
or an earworm or something, you know, with a song and the thought of what would I fly in space? What would I fly in space? If I had the opportunity, would it be a family heirloom? Would it be a photo? Like what if I could fly something, would that be? And I landed on, I would fly the stories that everyone has been sharing with me all these years. Like how can I (laughs) put the stories about space into space? And so I pitched Stephanie after a couple, you know, months of me really thinking it through, like, okay, I got to get my corporate brain back on and I have to approach her with solutions. Again, NASA teaches, NASA taught me this, always become prepared when you're pitching, you know, anything or when you're stepping into a meeting, just be prepared in life. So I came to Stephanie prepared and I said, if I bring you some payload, could you fly it? And she was like, what's the payload? And I pitched it and I told her. And then we kind of brainstormed on how that would work. And as it turns out, Ryan, 55 micro SD cards are flying to space June 1st. And they contain hundreds of stories from people who on this open global source project sent us their stories to the project. And now the stories about space are flying to space. That's and incredible. I'm so ex- Isn't that incredible? It was just an idea a year ago. And now June 1st, it will fly on a SpaceX rocket to, here comes full circle, the International Space Station, (laughs) where it will sit, (laughs) I know, where it will sit for six months and it'll be exposed to the harsh radiation of space so that, and you know me, I didn't want to just, if I have the opportunity to geek out, I'm going to do it all the way. So not just collect stories of space, but let's do some science while we're doing the project. So I reached out to the University of Utah, Utah State University, and I said, you guys have flown things before. Can you help me academically make this into something that we test the stories as well as fly them? And they said, heck yeah. Right now, Ryan, satellite, especially small satellites, Their SD storage is how they share data and store data. So those SD microcards are an inexpensive data storage. And they know this, so they don't make big investments in these micro SD cards. They do a couple, like a backup, like maybe three or four or five or 10, whatever they need. So those cards have radiation damage when they fly. And we're testing of those 55 five different brands to see which ones fare better and which ones not so much. So when they come back after six months of radiation exposure from station, we will put them back on the ground and then take them back to Utah State and they're going to examine which cards did really well because microchips and you know micro SD data storage is right now the future and the way in which we're going to continue to, you know, examine our Earth's observing systems, the things we're doing with whatever satellites are storing for their data. This is how we're going to continue to do it. So we want to give that science back to the community, science and, you know, the microchip makers and the small satellite creators and say, well, these cards seem to be doing better and these cards seem to be needing for whatever reason and we're going to examine that reason and share the science with you so not only do stories fly but the science research will come too and this is just the first step the goal here big and bold that we learned at space camp you know think boldly and nasa is let's send some to station today let's send some to the moon next year and let's send some to mars 
in the upcoming <laughs> years. So I hope this project continues in a big way. It needs a lot of funding, but I think at the heart of it, Ryan, everyone has a space story or an envision or a dream and or a technology or an invention. And if we can capture that and fly it, it's just one way that we connect people to space here on Earth by sending their story, their original unique story yeah. that they wrote into space. I love the symmetry of this idea that these stories of space's past are going to make stories of space's future recordable. That's You're wonderful. You're hired. You're our PR guy now. <laughs> I love it. That's it. Let's tagline that. Hashtag stories from now for future innovations. Yes, all of it. That's, that's the goal. Do you want to take a second and let folks know where they can find information on the stuff you're doing now? Like where can we find your podcast? Where can we find information on stories of space project and, and things like that? Thank you, Ryan. So you can find everything from the podcast to some really unique projects I'm doing and the analog missions I'm going on. We'll see what the third one is at BethMund.com. The podcast lives there as well, I think I mentioned. And then if you want to send a story to space, you've got to check out and subscribe to storiesofspace.com. We're going to be keeping updates there. And then we're all on all the social media channels. So check us out on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, because we're about to announce where the next set of stories will go. And it's very exciting. So Right now, story submissions are closed simply because we had to capture all those and send them to station. Right. And they're launching June 1st. And everyone can help us count down and watch that launch. But uh, we are about to open the next invitation for stories. And as long as you can type it out in English and send it to us, so you can translate it before, but send it to us, we will send your story to space. So storiesofspace.com, casual space podcast, and then bethmund.com. The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. If you were offered an opportunity to go to space today, would you go? That's not a question. That's a fact. <laughs> I don't know. You you had concern about the yes. going to the underwater. I would, go. <laughs> I would go in the most comfortable SpaceX Dragon. <laughs> and I would go with my... No, well, Blue Origin looks pretty comfortable too. Let's <laughs> be honest. It doesn't matter, Ryan. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. I think the only thing I... if. If I had to go in the Soyuz, you'd have to train me really good because I don't know if you've seen it lately, but it's pretty, it's pretty tight. Yeah. It's really small. <laughs> and I'm, did I mention I'm really tall? <laughs> I love this. I'm going to steal this from the astronaut corps because I worked with them for those years and I always heard them say this and it's so true. Do what you love. And if you can find that then your place in space, if you choose to be in the space industry, 
it will fall right in line. I didn't set out in the STEM field as a communicator and with my soft skills, where was that going to land in a space-based industry? But I knew that that was what I was good at and what I enjoyed. And so I just pursued that and my skills and talents with where I love them. And for astronauts too, you know, their space experience and their space training and flight is a small fraction of their whole career. When you ask an astronaut, what they are, they're usually not answering, I'm an astronaut. They say, I'm a biologist, or I'm a architect, or I'm going to be a mission specialist because I grow food in space like no one else. You know, this is all coming. So for students listening, whatever it is that you love, it will transition into a space-based career if that's what you choose. So find what you love. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'm 